and welcome to the first episode of Behind the Broadcast. We've waited such a long time to bring this to you and we're starting the series taking you behind the scenes of TV broadcasting. Still the main source of news for millions around the world and as a fast-paced and exciting industry, I'm sure there'll be plenty to learn about how much work it takes to make it all happen. But first, let us both introduce ourselves. I'm Maleri. And I'm Louis. We're both students at Cardiff University and aspiring journalists, so it's an absolute pleasure and a real privilege to be able to talk to our guest today, Anna Botting from Sky News, who is herself Cardiff alumni. Anna is currently the presenter of the 10 o'clock news at Sky, and she's been there for the last 25 years. She was previously a regional broadcaster with the BBC, and she's had an extremely exciting career with her first stories from the studio, including a train crash and a terrorist attack. Anna's covered multiple wars as a reporter, but even as a presenter, she still manages to travel around the world to present on location. So we've got a whole host of questions to try and bring as much of Anna's experiences to you and learn as much as possible about reporting and presenting TV news in this short podcast. We'll be starting off with sort of some of the day-to-day quirks of the job, uh, things like getting a fit of giggles while reporting, which for many wouldn't be too much of a problem, but for Anna happened right before she was reporting on a plane hijacking. But it's not all fun and games. We'll be asking Anna about the challenges of the job, such as navigating regulations and covering stories from the scene. We'll also be talking about war reporting and the logistics of covering major international events from Iraq to the Fukushima nuclear disaster. And Anna's been presenting and reporting from abroad, and we'll hear what it was like to report 300 metres down in the Indian Ocean. Hi, Anna. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast here. Uh, it's great to have you on. My pleasure. We're all prone to a fit of giggles, of course, from time to time. Um, has there ever been a time on camera where you've had an outburst of laughter? That has happened a lot to me, I have to say. Um, there was one occasion where... Um, I used to do uh, the press preview, which I now do again, with um, a very funny longtime broadcaster called Bob Friend. And he and I used to laugh all the time anyway, to the point actually where some of our producers thought that we should be separated for being unprofessional. Um, But they did not separate us, I'm glad to say. And anyway, an old Radio 1 DJ would come in and do the papers um, called Simon Bates. And every time he walked in, we'd start laughing. So he came in, sat down, and we literally had to hide behind the papers for seven minutes. The problem was at the start of this, the, the, the director said, there's been a plane hijacking due to land at Stansted Airport, go to the breaking news when you can. So for seven minutes, she repeated that as we hid behind our newspaper going, what about the times? And nobody could say a word apart from laughing. And then in the final minute, with rivulets of tears down my makeup, I did one minute to camera on the breaking news story as if nothing had happened. So that was probably the worst, I think. But it honestly, it happens, it happens all the time. And um, how often do you now go home and end up watching yourself on TV and do you get used to that feeling? Oh, never. I deliberately don't watch myself on television. Um, I'm one of these people that goes into the studio, I get uh, all the cameras pointing away, I get the monitors turned off me and that's the only way I can do it is to pretend I'm not on. So the idea of coming home and watching myself would be, you know, on pain of death, I think. Also, I think it would make me too self-conscious to actually do it. The way I like to broadcast is to, is to just, I don't know, I suppose be as natural as you can. And if I watched myself, it would remind myself that, that I was actually on television, which is not something that I choose to do. 
So, Anna, you broadcast to the nation on TV, uh, and I'm sure there have been many instances where news breaks live on air. So how challenging is kind of processing a story that quickly uh, and being able to explain it clearly to the audience? Well, it, it is challenging, and it very much depends on what comes after that first drop. So one of the, the worst ones in terms of getting information out was the Haiti earthquake, where we had one line which said that there had been a massive earthquake in Haiti. Then I think we had one other line, and that was it, and that was nearly it, and we did three hours of rolling news on that. And I think at one point we had a map going up, that was about it, and then I think we might have had one image and we did breaking news on that. And there was so little information coming out, not surprisingly, because everything was knocked out. Um, so that was really, really challenging. But we we kept going with it. And, you know, you can do telephone interviews with um, experts in America, for example. So you can get information out. But there was nothing actually coming from Haiti, bar, you know, U.S. Geological Survey stuff. But even the night of the Manchester Arena terror attack I was on, and we had one line saying there'd been an incident in the station underneath the arena and that it was being taken very seriously by British transport police. And at that point, we went to it and we carried on and it was really, really slow to find out what was happening. And you subsequently find out, of course, that's because the emergency services don't go into a terror situation like that so then they haven't got the information to put out and then finally you speak to people who just escaped the blast or whatever it might be but that but even on something in the UK like that it can be really really slow to come out. We wanted to talk to you about you know the differences of broadcasting on location to being in the studio do you find one is more challenging than the other? Well, I mean, in the studio, you've got all your toys in front of you, haven't you? Which is a computer. Um, you've got monitors to see what's happening. You've got clear audio from the director and producer in your ear. So, so that's all set out for you. And on location, you might lose all of that, for example. Um, so some of the, the hardest things we've done, um, well, for example, the Japanese tsunami, there was no mobile network. So I had to phone the office on a sat phone, a satellite phone, transcribe an hour of broadcasting and then try and remember it to do the actual broadcast. Um, even at Westminster, sometimes you might lose comms or communications in your ear. It might be chucking it down. Um, there, there are so many difficult things that can go wrong on location. But as long as you can hear the, um, the gallery, then you know you can get something out. But but you know, even on a cloudy day, it's quite hard to get a satellite. It sounds bizarre. It's quite hard to get a satellite signal out of a truck. So there's there's so many things that can go wrong on location. They really it, it totally depends what story you're doing, the sort of difficulties you are facing. Um, so obviously recently, especially with the BBC sort of changing their social media guidelines, um, there's there's been more of a debate around regulations. Have you ever felt confined by regulations and editorial guidelines? Yes, definitely on social media. Um, and it's very easy to just retweet something that turns out then to be wrong. And in the era of the fake news accusation, I think um, all, all journalists and all broadcast journalists do have to be really thoughtful about what they do. But for me, it stemmed much earlier than that. I used to work at the BBC in Newcastle. And at the time, the BBC regulations got stricter and stricter and stricter. And there was one that said, you can't appro um, approach people who've just come out of prison. 
And so there was a case of a woman who had been sent to jail for playing music too loud. And it was Whitney Houston. And it was a great story. The first time ever somebody had been sent to jail for playing Whitney Houston too loud. So I followed the BBC's guidance of not going to approach them. Hugh Pym, who is uh, now obviously with the BBC, at the time was working for ITV, and he went and got a great interview with them. And at that point, I thought, you know, you've got to be really careful about editorial guidance because it stops you being a good journalist. So there is a balance to be had, I think, between your own natural news instincts and what feels right, which you develop, and some people have and some people don't, I believe, and following the letter of the law. So with social media, yes, read the story before you retweet it, go elsewhere, check the facts that are in the story, and then do it if you feel comfortable with it. Um, because it's very easy just to shoot stuff off, isn't it, all the time on social media and retweet everything. But also take a view on the implications of what you're saying. So yes, the, the social media is a whole can of worms for people in broadcast, especially if you're not freelance and you, your bosses care about what you're doing. So we have quite strict um, editorial guidance now about social media, but it feeds through every single part of what you do. And at the end of the day, you've got to trust your own news instincts, which is the bit that makes you a good journalist. Mm, that's very interesting. And moving on to what's been a major part of your career as a broadcaster. We know you've presented live from Baghdad, covered the Libya conflict, the Lebanon war. How did you end up doing war correspondence? Was mm -hmm. it a choice? Well, well, one of them, I think, was because people had kept saying no to it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I think maybe my, I suppose my first one was, um, 2007, and it was the, the height of the surge in Baghdad. And uh, I know a colleague of mine had said no to it. Um, he'd ended up losing colleagues in the Iraq war, and it just got to the point where you do one too many and it feels too dangerous. And this was very dangerous because obviously around the whole, the whole of, around the entirety of Baghdad, there was a, there was a war on. And in the end, I don't know why I decided to do it. I spoke to correspondents out there who persuaded me that it was safe enough to get in and to go. And, um, you know, we landed and there was an international conference on actually in the green zone of Baghdad. And you, you met by security, <clears throat> you get all your, you know, your PPE on your flak jackets and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then you put a, um, a, uh, something on over the top and you wear a scarf, so you hide the fact that you're Western. And he said, <clears throat> the great news is that this road is empty, which means you can't get a suicide car attack next to you. But the bad news is that everything, every vehicle on this road is a target. And so you, you go across Baghdad and it's really strange, barbed wire everywhere. And I just remember billowing plastic bags because there'd been no litter collection for, for months or years. So the whole place was this billowing plastic bag place, all completely empty and a big sign saying, welcome to Baghdad. And obviously there was no welcome to Baghdad and the twitchiness of the American soldiers in the green zone. Um, and as soon as we arrived, these rockets went over our head and subsequently we saw the international conference and you could see the people ducking. Well, not the Iraqis, because they were used to it. You could see the, uh, I think it was the UN Secretary General, in fact, ducking. And that was indeed the rockets that flew right over our head. So for me, I think I got into it because somebody had said no to going, probably. Um, but I'm very green around the ears still in terms of war reporting compared to our correspondents who honestly have done so many now. It's, um, it's a really tough thing to know whether you want to be in that situation. And some mm. people do, some people find they can't because it's too traumatizing and other people just crack on and keep doing it to whatever 
impact on their mental health subsequently. Um, so what sort of have the logistics for you been in, in reporting on wars? Um, you know, it's, it, how, how, do you, so for, how, how do you sort of get into the field? I mean, is it almost as simple as an editor walking up to you one day and just handing you a plane ticket and a flak jacket or, or <laughs> there's some more to it than that? Well, for Iraq, indeed, you just fly into Baghdad. Um, you, at that point, you could go into Jordan, um, take a Royal Jordanian Airways flight to from Amman, and uh, they they come on the tannoy, and instead of saying, we'll be serving tea and coffee, they say, and we'll be zigzagging across Iraq for your safety. And they do, they literally zigzag across the desert, and then they land in what's called the corkscrew, which is very fast and very sharp and come straight down. And um, that is literally flying in on a carrier. Um, the difficulty on the way back from that is that the airport was being bombed while we were leaving. And I remember being with the CNN correspondent who was so ill um, with Jardia or whatever it was, um, she just didn't care. And a security guy who'd been there for six months, he just shrugged and went, oh, I'm just bored of it now. And for me, it was, I found it really exciting. Does that sound terrible? I mean, the, the, air, the runway was being mortared, the whole building was shaking and the plane was delayed by 10 minutes. You couldn't say that for the UK, could you? Um, in other places, though, you have to go to a safe country first and then drive in. I remember trying to get into Libya and our correspondent, Alex Crawford, had the night before um, gone into Tripoli with the rebels, um, broadcasting it live. And it had been shown all around the world. And I was stuck in Paris with an air traffic control strike trying to fly into Tunisia. And um, I heard the BBC sat in this couple of seats in front of me saying they were going to do the 10 o'clock news from as soon as they landed and so I told the producer when I landed there he'd already been in waiting for me in Tunisia flying in a different route and they said right let's go so we drove instantly uh, that straight to the border tried to get across the border which obviously most people aren't trying not to get to Libya most people trying to leave Libya and set off across the well effectively it is desert to drive to um, a little stopping point to have a quick shower probably two hours sleep and then head on to a place called Zawir, which had been seriously destroyed, slept on the floor of a ministry building, the Ministry of Education building, covered in glass and everything. And then we tried to borrow a car and uh, again, via rebels. So the rebels help you at this point. And so they gave us a car, but the car had no clutch. And the first thing you learn when you go on courses is always stop at checkpoints, always explain who you are, try to get them on side. Anyway, so every time we drove past the checkpoint, of which there were many on the way into Tripoli, I'd have to stick my head out the window, so I looked like a Western journalist, apologise profusely and drive on because we couldn't stop because we didn't have any clutch, so we had to keep driving. So we had to drive through all of these checkpoints, burnt out, you know, tanks left, right and centre, and we'd been told to go to a safe house and, um, and to meet our colleagues there. Well, we never did meet our colleagues, to be fair. They were elsewhere in Tripoli, which was, you know, in, in, in a world of interest by then. And uh, as soon as we landed at this, this safe house, there was a, a guy jumped on the car, started looking like he was gonna spray people with a Kalashnikov. And I had a very experienced cameraman with me there who said, right, let's go behind the wall and just wait here. And it turned out this safe house was where the rebels had been dragging Gaddafi supporters to interrogate them and no doubt torture them. So all the journalists were two floors up and the torture was at the bottom. So it was this really bizarre Wild West scenario. But that was a case of landing in a safe country and then driving in, borrowing a car, doing what you can, you know, 
it's just it's, every situation is, is different, I think, um, to get in. But there's your brilliant foreign desk has hopefully thought of the logistics before you have to. Um, but obviously, you don't know what the situation is on the ground when you get there. So talking of kind of the, the preparation that you do um, for, for uh, war reporting, what sort of training did you have to do um, for it? Well, we all have to go on these, um, what we call HEFAT courses, which is hostile environment and first aid courses. And a lot of that is first aid. They've worked out that most of the deaths will will come because you don't know first aid. And, and by that, I mean, and this is gruesome, you know, putting your finger in a bullet hole, how to seal a bullet hole, how to deal with burns, how to stuff someone's guts back in and keep them in. Um, it sounds disgusting, doesn't it? You know, how to get someone the right way round, you know, if they've collapsed, um, all, all the real basics, but it's hardcore stopping major bleeds. It's it's not your, here's a plaster type of thing. Um, so we all have to do, we all have to do that. And that used to be, used to be kidnapped. And people, some people were very traumatized by the kidnapping. I really loved it, I have to say. And now they don't do that. And it's much more about looking after people's mental health and the trauma that people have been through and how to deal with that rather than let's really shake them up and show, show them what it's like. Um, but nonetheless, you still have to do as if you've been in a, um, you know, you get shot at a bit, you have to go and find somewhere to hide. Um, it's, what's, an, you have to be in ambushes uh, as, you, as you're looking after people and trying to treat them for their wounds people come back so it is, it is trying to get you aware of things but then it's also about where you where you would run to if you were caught out um, and they show you previous clips of other terror attacks which to be fair sort of freaks you out more than the war zone sometimes I think probably so there is yes there's definitely a lot of training and we have to do that every couple of years to make sure well I say we're insured we're not really you're never insured for a war zone are you but anyway it's so you know at least vaguely what you're up against um, so that's really useful, I have to say. You've spoken there about some seriously, you know, harrowing situations. And we wanted to ask you about mental health within broadcasting. You know, we know that post-traumatic stress disorder um, can be a huge issue in war reporting and across many fields within broadcasting. Do you think that the high intensity of broadcasting can put all journalists at heightened risk of mental health problems? Well, I think, yes, I do. And for two reasons, probably. One is that, as we all know, it's endless now. You know, the old correspondents used to literally ship their stuff and sit back and have a have a beer. Now we know that the means of communication are such that we can all broadcast all the time. Um, and secondly, the means of broadcast means we can get nearer. And that's very much the case um, in places like Mosul, for example, where our correspondent, while I was live presenting, from East Mosul, she was in West Mosul, literally confronted by three suicide attacks right next to her. And there's one extraordinary image where they ran into a building and was still filming and an Iraqi soldier ran in and all you could see was his helmet and his head flying back with the force of the blast and the helmet flying off. Um, so they were so near. And so you can broadcast with such a lightweight kit now and you can, you can broadcast from a laptop. So I talked about our correspondent Alex Crawford going into Tripoli, they were broadcasting on what's called a beacon and they were driving in on a laptop, literally pointing it 
moving it to get the signal all the way in. The producer was holding it. So, so I think for two reasons, one, you're on all the time, and two, or you can be on all the time, and two, you can get so much nearer, then I think for those two reasons that journalists are very exposed now. And what would you say is the best place you've travelled to as a journalist or a reporter? Well, you know, I think that's probably quite recently. Um, Sky's had a, um, a campaign, um, Sky Ocean Rescue, to try and save the oceans and get rid of plastic. And it's been this enormous campaign that they've done on a corporate level. And they kept saying, well, what are we, what are we saving? What are we saving? So they cooked up a plan to be... Um, to do the first deep water live from under the ocean uh, with a, uh, a charity called Necton. And I was asked if I would like to go and was I claustrophobic? I'd been going down in a two man submarine. And by the way, it's in the Seychelles. And surprisingly or not, I said, yes. So we, we traveled by boat for two and a half days to the coral atoll of Aldabra, which I do urge you to look at and um, managed to do the first deep water dive uh, there. Uh, we broadcast using light technology. So there was um, a sort of an antennae on the top of our sub and they dropped this um, wire down <clears throat> and the two of them communicated by light. Honestly, it's so, it's so bizarrely difficult. And we managed to do live programs from underwater. And um, the first time we went down to practice it, it was, there'd just been a storm and it was quite late in the day. And there were manta rays going over saw multiple sharks, um, the most extraordinary experience. And then we also got a filming permit to film on Aldabra, which is very rare, and stayed overnight. Probably the one of the worst night's sleep I've ever had. I thought I was going to internally combust, it was so hot. And there were all these Aldabra giant tortoises everywhere and robber crabs. And I watched a green turtle try and lay her eggs. And we did a day of broadcasting. And the beaches of Aldabra were literally drowning in litter. And you could tell where they'd come from because the plastic bottles were. They'd come across the Indian Ocean. Um, so the combination of going under the water uh, and doing this submarine lives, which was just bizarrely bonkers and difficult, and the extraordinary experience of being on Aldabra, you know, I think that's probably the best it gets. Mm. Well, as Louis said, thank you so much for joining us. I, I've learned so much. So to, to end, what's the best advice you could give people wanting to get into the broadcast journalism industry? Do you know, I would expect a few first tough years. We all have it, especially now. Um, who's employing? It's very difficult. But that's normal anyway, even, you know, aside from the pandemic, most people do not walk straight into a job. Most people have a lot of rejections. You just got to weather the first few years, try and fund yourself somehow to do it. And as um, Alex Crawford, our top correspondent said, the cream will always rise to the top. So you will get there. And I think you won't necessarily get there how you wanted to. I never wanted to be a journalist. Um, I was going to go to you know, Berkeley, California to study racial geography. And um, my dad was a writer and he, he had a book about a wartime massacre, which was launched at the Houses of Parliament. And it was only after seeing that on the BBC News and the ITV News and PA writing it up that I suddenly wanted to be a journalist. And so I threw out my plans to go to Berkeley, California. 20 years later, there I was, 2008, covering the Obama election campaign from San Francisco. And who did I interview at Berkeley, California, the professor of racial geography who would have taught me 20 years earlier. And so I would say, you get where you're meant to be 
even if you don't quite take the route that you think you're going to. Well, that was a really great way to kick off the series. I think having Anna Botting on there, um, you know, her experience uh, both abroad and at home is all really useful stuff. A real eye-opener to follow Anna's journey really around the world with broadcasting. Totally fascinating. And we hope that you listeners have learned as much as I and Louis have. Some of the most important stuff in there is definitely kind of about that, uh, having that sort of gut for news, having that kind of news sense. Yeah, definitely. She said a few times, and she, to trust our instincts. Mm-hmm. And that's what make us good journalists, to really have, as you said, that new sense about what makes a good story. And it's often people, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, that is true. That is true. But it's, it's also kind of knowing not only when to report a story, but having that, that understanding to know when sometimes you just have to leave something out. You, you know, you do have to be aware of guidelines and, and regulations and kind of know the rules that you have to play by. Yeah, and she talked a lot about social media and, you know, how journalism is almost a 24-7 job now. And, you know, it feeds through everything you do as a journalist. But you've got to be so mindful of the possible implications of what you post um, that everything's fact-checked and everything is entirely accurate. But, you know, it's not all about those kind of rules and regulations and everything. Uh, presenting, as we've seen, isn't just about kind of sitting in a newsroom and editorialising. Um, that amazing story about uh, having gone and reported from under the sea, under the Indian Ocean, was just incredible. I mean, yeah. I'm sure all of us hope that's what we're going to do in, in, in the job once we, uh, once we finish our training courses and stuff. Definitely. Um, yeah, yeah, I think the, the opportunities for travel in, in journalism, especially nowadays, as, as she did discuss as well, uh, do make it a, a hell of a job to be involved in. Yeah, and you get the feeling, especially from what Anna was saying, you know, that there really are no limits anymore. You know, you can go anywhere with journalism. It's such an open field. And Mm -hmm. yeah, the experiences that you can gain is just incredible. Obviously, though, with it being a more fast paced job where you're going to be working on all sorts of different things every day, you do have to keep an eye on on kind of your mental health as well, because it is a 24 seven job. Um, as me and Malaria have learned, even on this course, you know, you're, you're always thinking about the job, always thinking about, oh, what's my next story going to be? Mm. Who am I going to be talking to tomorrow? Uh, planning everything in your head. So you, you do have to be a little uh, careful as well. Mm. And, you know, obviously she's touched on so much of the war reporting and things and how exposed journalists are now to these harrowing scenes, you know, because she was talking about how, easy it is to get closer to scenes and because the kit isn't as heavy anymore and you know we've always got that camera with you following you around and you know you face some really tough scenes and that you know it's not easy it's not easy mm. any mental health I mean even even it's not just it's not just for war reports as well it is mm. everyone because in the job you're going to be covering things that are in the public's interest mm. and that can include a lot of very traumatic traumatic stuff even you know here at home um, so, so it is important to keep a mind on it and probably most important as well is to remember that, you know, especially for younger journalists like us, the job itself is kind of stressful enough. So don't let the training and the, and the education side of things stress you out too much. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think the best things we can take away from that is to trust your instinct and don't mm-hmm. stress because we've got plenty of time and we will get there eventually. And we may even get to the broadcast 300 metres under the sea. 
<laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, we hope you enjoyed. Um, we certainly did. And we hope you learned as much as us. Uh, remember uh, to keep up to date with our episodes here on Spotify and through Anchor. Uh, and you can also know when they're going to drop by following us on Twitter at Broadcast 101 uh, and Instagram and Facebook at Behind the Broadcast. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.